It's the Americhips with Kim Monson. Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal. The most important story. The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump. The latest in politics and world affairs. Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. Because ideas matter. It's the Americhicks, dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect these issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests and topics and important issues out there. But thrilled today to be having a conversation with the president of Wall Builders, Tim Barton. And we're going to be talking about the separation of church and state. Tim, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're going to be talking about a really important uh, issue out there. Uh, This is a very important conversation, and that is the separation of church and state. But before we do that, explain to my listeners exactly what Wall Builders is. Yeah, well, thanks for asking, because uh, we we periodically do get some confusion. Being in Texas, um, when, when people hear wall builders, they instantly think of a construction company, and oftentimes <laughs> that maybe we are, are, are people building the uh, border on the southern or the southern wall border, I guess. And so that, that's not really us. It's not what we do. We're, we're not directly involved with that. Um, the name wall builders actually comes from the Bible book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah was um, a part of the, the Israelite Hebrew community that was taken into captivity. Um, while he was there, he, he felt compelled. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem, and his nation had been destroyed. He wanted to rebuild his nation. And so he went back to Jerusalem, and, and over 52 days, he was able to get a grassroots movement where people got involved, and they were able to do what people thought was impossible, and that was rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and make it habitable for those people again. And so one of the things that, that our organization started back in 1988 when my dad felt compelled looking at our nation going, man, we are seeing so many problems with the, the religious, the moral, the constitutional heritage of our nation. We want to help rebuild that heritage, that, that religious and, and moral fabric of the nation. And so that it really is when we got involved and got started. We, we do a lot with American history, um, with, with public policy, with education. But we have what's considered the largest private collection of original documents from before 1812, so actually the founding father era. We have more than 120,000 either original documents or some of them are, are copies of the original. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a massive collection. So we're able to actually go and, and, and do the research from the Founding Fathers' own writings so we don't have to guess what they thought about an issue. We actually can read their writings and see exactly what they wrote about the issue. So that's a lot of what we do, which is why it becomes significant having a conversation like the separation of church and state is going back and saying, okay, so, so what did they really mean? What was this all about? Because it's really not what we hear today. Well, that's for sure. And to that point, uh uh, what I've started to do is read legislation out here in Colorado as it's proposed. I used to think that it was above my pay grade, but I realized that instead of listening to all the talking heads and the pundits, go and read it for yourself. And so that is what you are doing at Wall Builders is is finding out what did they really intend. So let's let's talk about separation of church and state. We hear that all the time. And uh, so where is that exactly in the Constitution? 
<laughs> well, and that, that's a really good first question. Um, so, so the the obvious answer is it's not in the Constitution. But but the important question is, is you know, where did this come from? Why? Why has this become so significant today? Where did this originate? And when you start looking, the, the answer you hear the most often is, well, the Constitution guarantees a separation of church and state, except that phrase appears nowhere in the Constitution. You will hear people say, well, it's the First Amendment, separation of church and state. The First Amendment does something very different from the modern notion of the separation of church and state. The First Amendment actually guarantees the free exercise of religion. That, that you and I have the freedom to, to be in public, whether we are educators or business professionals or medical professionals or even political professionals, we have the ability to practice our faith, and that does not violate the separation of church and state. But in the First Amendment, there are two clauses that deal with religion. The first one is called the Establishment Clause, and it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. But the second clause, known as the Free Exercise Clause, says that Congress cannot prevent or prohibit the free exercise thereof, meaning they can't stop us from practicing religion. But the important thing is, at least for the, the, the notion of separation of church and state, is that they could not establish a religion. And the historical context gives a lot better understanding of this, because historically, if, if you go back for hundreds, if not even thousands of years, it was very common living in a nation for the king, the, the ruler, the emperor, whoever's in charge of the nation, they would impose their religious faith on those under them. And this was exactly what the early pilgrims, the early settlers to America, what they had gone through in their nations, whether it was in England, when, if you remember, under King Henry VIII, uh, initially they were Catholic. And then King Henry VIII said, you know, there's some things about this Catholic religion that I don't really like anymore. And so he formed his new religion, and it became known as the Anglican religion. But he began changing specific doctrines. Well, under King Henry VIII, he actually imposed that everybody in his nation had to be Anglican. And, and, and this was a very common practice, but this is where the pilgrims were. And so in a nation where they're being compelled to, to follow a religious practice and belief that was different than theirs, they said, you know, let, let's go to the new world where we can have more freedom to live our faith, to practice our beliefs. And this was very common for many early settlers from all over Europe coming to America seeking religious freedom because in their nations, the king had imposed a religious doctrine and said, if you don't believe this, you could be punished, whether it was thrown in prison. There were times when you could be branded, you'd be put in the stocks, when people would have their ears cut or their nose cut or their tongues cut. I mean, significant things happened, and so people were leaving Europe, coming to America to practice religious freedom. Well, this is the foundation of some of the historical understanding that led the Founding Fathers to say, we're not going to allow an establishment of religion. Today, we often call Christian denominations just that. They're denominations. In the founding era, they were known as religions. You had the Catholic religion, the Anglican religion, the Baptist religion, the Quaker religion, the Congregationalist religion. What we know as denominations, they knew as religions, but they said, we're not going to let the government say that everybody has to be Anglican, everybody has to be Baptist, everybody has to be Catholic, whatever it was. They said, no, 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 we believe in the free exercise of religion. This was the historical view. Now, the Constitution was written in 1787. Bill of Rights comes a couple years later. Well, the phrase, the separation of church and state, did not even enter the conversation until many years later when actually Thomas Jefferson was president. 
And, and Thomas Jefferson is the guy who, who wrote the now infamous letter that references the separation of church and state. But there was a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, and they were, at the time, the Baptists were a very small denomination. Uh, Connecticut was largely a Congregationalist state, and the Baptists were very concerned that they were seeing the growth of the Congregationalist denomination, that, that there were a lot of Congregationalist political leaders, and they were afraid that if enough Congregationalists get elected to public office, that they're going to do what we've seen in Europe, and they're going to make everybody be Congregationalist. And, and so the Baptists were very concerned that they were going to be essentially pushed out of the ability to have their own denomination. And it's almost humorous today, at least being in the South, when you imagine that the Baptists were concerned they weren't going to exist, <laughs> because it seems in the South, at least, on almost every street corner, there is a Baptist church of some kind. So I, I think the Baptists survived. They, they, they're okay. They made it. But Thomas Jefferson wrote them a letter back, and in the letter he wrote them, he says, you don't need to worry about somebody coming and forcing their beliefs, their doctrines on you, because, he says, Congress has passed the First Amendment, where they said that the Congress can cannot choose an establishment religion, they can't prohibit your free exercise. He says, we have therefore erected an eternal wall of separation between church and state to make sure that your religious freedom will forever be protected. Now, what's significant about the context of that letter is he says the reason there's a separation of church and state is to make sure the government can never tell you what you can and can't do with your religion and where you can and can't do that. Today, we have gone so far in the opposite direction, not knowing history, not knowing context, and, and not even quoting the letter intentionally in context, where Jefferson's letter is only a couple hundred words. It's not very hard to go back and read that letter. But today, people are not concerned with what the context of the letter actually says or what the letter meant. They're more concerned with using it for their agenda to say, wait a second, this is why we shouldn't have chaplains in the military. This is why we, we shouldn't allow students to pray over their meals in public school or why high school seniors can't mention God and, and their valedictorian or salutatorian speeches and, you know, on down the list it goes. Well, libraries can't put up a, a nativity scene or you can't have those on, on, on courthouses or on, you know, city mm -hmm. halls mm -hmm. at, at, at Christmas. We hear such different things today which has nothing to do with the founder's explanation or understanding of the notion of the limitations of government. The separation of church and state was to limit government's interaction with religion, not to say that we could not have religion in the public sphere, which is the way it's used today. Well, and thank you for clarifying that. Just one other question. Some people have said that even though Congress can not establish a religion, that states could. Could you address that, uh, Tim Barton, please? Absolutely. Well, in the founding era, there actually were state-established religions because under the Constitution, the Constitution applied directly to federal government. And one of the great things about the Bill of Rights is you have Article 10. Article 10 says whatever was not specifically given to the federal government belongs to the states. And states, although the federal government was limited, that you can have no religious limit test for office, that you can't establish religion, that was for the federal government. That did not apply to the states at that time. Today... We actually, and now partly because of the 14th Amendment, um, because of Supreme Court cases and precedent, now we say anything done at the federal level applies to all states. Well, that's the way it's done today. That's not the way it was done at the time. In fact, in the Founding Fathers era, nine of the 13 original colonies did have state-established religions. 
And that was very common in the founding era. And not to say that that has to happen again today or that we would want that to happen again today, but it, it is something that today we kind of forget about the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment to the Constitution said that there are more rights that individual citizens have that were not explicitly stated, because the Bill of Rights talks about you have the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech, and you have private property, and you have self-defense. There were specific rights outlined in the Bill of Rights, but they said there's more rights than just the ones we mentioned, and Article 10 or Amendment 10 says that actually the states also have all the rights that were not given to the federal government. Well, the Constitution only gave 17 rights to the federal government, which means the states have all the other rights. Today, we've gone a very different direction. Um, but at the time the Constitution was written, in the founding era and early America, that's the way it was. So the only group limited by the First Amendment was actually the federal government and specifically Congress. Because the only thing the First Amendment says is that Congress shall make no law. Well, the kid praying at graduation is not Congress making a law, right? A chaplain in the military is not Congress making a law. A nativity display in public is not Congress making a law. The only limitation was Congress could not make a law saying you all have to be this denomination or this religion. Oh, gosh. And Tim, Martin, this is absolutely fascinating. Let's go to break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion on uh, separation of church and state. So we will be right back. It's baseball season, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. Love their nine items for 9 bucks, 11 to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can dine in or you can get food to go delivered to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. All AmeriChick sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com. Don't miss Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Join Kim Munson with the Americhicks at Water's Edge Winery in Centennial or Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock. And now introducing Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins at Ginger and Baker. Kim Munson with the Americhicks would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Loveland for sponsoring the new Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins. In Denver and Castle Rock, Kim would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Denver and YourTownTaxpayers.com for their generous support. Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Sign up today at AmeriChicks.com. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear a to a land that's free. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree? Let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. Sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming topics and guests and all those issues out there. Thrilled to have on the line with me Tim Barton. He is the president of Wall Builders. And again, Tim, for people that are just tuning in, what is Wall Builders exactly? 
Yeah, Wobblegers is an organization that we focus a lot on American history. Specifically, we're trying to emphasize and promote the religious, the moral, and the constitutional heritage of the nation. Um, and so we're not a construction company, even though that's kind of what the name implies. <laughs> um, the name comes from a Bible book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah was the one in the Bible who uh, had been taken into captivity. And, and he went back. He's the one who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And we looked at our nation and thought, man, our nation needs some help. We want to rebuild the religious, the moral, the constitutional heritage of the nation that's come so much under attack. And so we embraced the name Wall Builders because Nehemiah said, let us go rebuild the walls that we may no longer be a reproach or a shame to other people. We want to be honorable again, so let's rebuild the walls. That's where the name Wall Builders comes from. Okay, very good. And that website is wallbuilders.com. Again, wallbuilders.com. So be sure and check that out. In the last segment, we were talking about uh, the, uh, the the establishment clause that Congress shall not be able to establish a religion, but yet states were doing that back in the founding. Um, but we can't now have Colorado decide everybody's going to be Baptist. That so you know what happened there? What what made sure. that change? Sure. So so under a strict a, a strict originalist viewpoint, which means that we follow exactly what the Constitution says. Arguably, you could do that now. We can't today because of the way the 14th Amendment is applied. Uh, because um, So one of the things that happened after the Civil War, when we started doing uh, some of the, the very early um, kind of Reconstruction era, the civil rights, um, when, when African Americans, when black Americans um, were, were getting their rights. And this right happened in the end of Abraham Lincoln, going from Abraham Lincoln coming forward. And so one of the things that was said is that states – Many southern states at that time argued, well, we have states' rights, and part of our states' rights means we can have slavery, it means right, we can exclude blacks, it means, and, and so they went down this list of, well, these are our states' rights. Now, I, I would fundamentally disagree because the Constitution was built on the Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration of Independence was built on the idea that rights don't come from government, they come from God, and government exists to protect those God-given rights. And, and so to say that I have the God-given right to enslave somebody else, to abuse somebody else, to beat somebody else, well, you're not going to be able to biblically defend that position very well. And, and so I would argue that's a violation of inalienable rights, which is protected under the Constitution. Those rights are protected. But the, the, you had southern states arguing, no, we still have states' rights. And so what happened was the 14th Amendment gets applied to say that now all states have to follow these federal laws, well, then that began this trickle effect that led to a waterfall that now basically everything that happens in Congress is applied to the states. And, and almost the inverse has an application because even though the First Amendment says that Congress is the one that can't make a law, now the, the government of Colorado, so to speak, right, so, so your House chambers, uh, whether it, it, it be your state reps, your state senators, it is now viewed that whatever the Constitution says applies to them. So when the Constitution says you can have no religious tests, litmus tests for office, that, that you can't establish a religion, well, now that applies not just federally, it applies to Colorado. This application was not originally what the Founding Fathers intended in the sense they believe that states should have a lot of sovereignty, that states should be able to make decisions, and this is where, again, I would point out that they, didn't, they wouldn't argue that states should be able to violate God-given rights, but rather that states should be able to make decisions that they thought benefited them the best. 
And, and today, states no longer have that same freedom and power. And again, largely because the U.S. Supreme Court, in applying the 14th Amendment, said that, nope, all states have to follow federal law, whatever's passed federally, states are obligated to follow. And so now, states are under the same standard that Congress, it used to be solely Congress was under that standard, now it applies to states as well. So it does make it tougher for states to have sovereignty. And, and even part of this, if you go back, the, the, the U.S. Senator's job was to uphold, protect, and defend the rights of the state. They were there to represent the state. Today, U.S. senators are like major U.S. representatives because they're chosen by the popular vote inside the state. And so whoever gets the majority of the votes goes instead of it used to be that they were chosen from the House chamber to go and represent the state. And your job is to defend the state. If you don't do a good job defending the state, then we're going to remove you and put somebody else there. Well, now the U.S. senator is no longer recognized as defending the state, and so states' rights have really been lost in very significant ways. But this is why when you back up and look and go, how did states used to have state religions? Because they used to believe in state sovereignty, that states had the ability to make decisions for their state because they were not bound by the same things that the federal constitution bound the federal government by because they weren't federal government, they were state governments. Well, and let's unpack that just a little bit. What you're talking about is the 17th Amendment. And that's, uh, so the founders, when they created the Constitution, uh, you know, they looked at the people, the House of Representatives was the the House of the People, but they, again, uh, they wanted to make sure that the, the states had a voice, and so the states were the ones that chose the Senate, uh, the senators, and it was the um, 17th Amendment in 1913, which was when uh, several of those progressive uh, amendments were passed that uh, changed the vote for senators to the popular vote as well. And that really kind of took, I think, a lot of the, the teeth out of out of states' rights, if you will. Uh, what do you think, Tim Barton? No, you're, you're 100% correct. Um, when, when a senator's job is now not to defend their state, but to just get reelected, it, it, it was a very different position when you were chosen by state elected officials because you're not running for office. They're saying this guy would do the best fighting for our state. Well, now if you're running for office, you're going to say what people want to hear, and you're going to try to be popular, and you're not going to try necessarily to defend your state. You're going to try to do what the nation is doing. And so senators have really lost their their understanding and even their position of what their job title was supposed to entail, right? Your job is not to to promote legislation like the U.S. congressman does, the U.S. House does, the U.S. Senate. Your job was to protect and defend your state, and that's really not what most senators do. They're, they're not there protecting and defending their state. Really, it's much more <laughs> about... What is the, the popular thing going on? Because that's how you get reelected. Okay, that segues into, I don't know that if you have seen this out here in Colorado, but our legislature passed um, legislation and it was signed into law that would give Coloradans, uh, Colorado's um, electoral college votes to the national popular vote. Now, we, we're going to hopefully have a question on our ballot. Uh, they're gathering uh, petitions right now to uh, re- to review that because it's highly unconstitutional. But what do you see the danger in uh, moving to a presidential national popular vote instead of the electoral college? And, and um, 
you know, maybe we'll expl- have you explain the Electoral College just a little bit as well. Yeah, so, so the popular vote, even though it seems like a good idea, you know, why wouldn't we want a, a president who was chosen by the majority of the people? That seems almost obvious, except the way that the Founding Fathers set up the Electoral College was actually a very brilliant system. Because at that time in early America, there were 13 colonies, and three of them had the majority of the population. And so the other 10 states were going, wait a second, and actually maybe it was four of them, and it was the other nine, because there was one who was rather big as well. But So let's say there was four of them who had the majority of the population, and nine of them who were in the minority. And so the nine said, wait a second, it's not right that you four states are going to elect the president, and, and, and our votes won't even matter. We're never going to have somebody from our state to be president. We're never going to have you know, somebody who wasn't from New York or Pennsylvania. This is, it, it, it's not a fair system. And so they started thinking, what is, what's the best way to do this? And what they determined is that the president would have to get the most votes in the most states and the most votes in the most counties of that state. And that was, that was the original idea. So you couldn't just win New York City and Philadelphia. You actually had to win the majority of the states and the majority of the population in the majority of the states was the idea. Now, it, it, the math plays a little different because based on population, you know, California, Texas, some states have a lot more population, so they, they have a few more electorates in their, their voting block. But right now, there are four states in America that have enough population in those states to elect the president by themselves. That is a significant thing because we don't want we don't want four states electing a president for everybody else. Actually, if if you look at the nation, I, I don't remember if, if there's uh, maybe it's, it's thirty thousand cities or something in America. I don't I don't remember the, the the number. It's a very large number, whatever it is. There are twenty cities, in, or maybe it's, it's thirty five thousand counties. Maybe that's what it is. There are there are twenty cities in America that have more population than all of the other cities in America combined. Because when you look at Los Angeles and Houston and New York City and Chicago, when you start looking at the major cities, those 20 cities have more population than the rest of America. And so if it came down to, you know what, as president, I only have to win Los Angeles and Chicago and Houston and San Antonio and New York City, and all of a sudden, Colorado becomes pretty insignificant. Now, Denver's got some population, so maybe they come and, and, and they're going to try to, to pick up the vote of Denver. But what the Founding Fathers understood is we want someone who's not just going to target the big cities. You have to win the majority of the votes in the majority of states, and generally win the state, you have to win the majority of counties in that state to win the state. It was a brilliant system to make sure everybody's voice was heard, not just the big cities were heard. And, and this is the danger of the popular vote, is that it eliminates a lot of states, and it eliminates the vast majority of cities, because Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, they don't represent the values of the rest of America. Right. If you look at San Francisco, where now they passed a law that is illegal for you to defecate on the streets, 
Right, like that—that's not the values of of no. the rest of America. That's not what we believe and think. But if you're one of those twenty major cities, and you're the ones who are controlling who is going to be the president for the rest of the nation, that doesn't seem like a fair system for the rest of us. Which is why the electoral college was put in place. It really is a brilliant system. But today, people don't understand why it was put there, and they don't understand how it works, and therefore, it 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 makes sense to most people. To get rid of that system, and let's just let's just have everybody vote. Whoever gets the majority votes to win, that makes the most sense. It does until you understand why they did the electoral college in the first place and how the electoral college works, and then you go, oh, well, that makes a little bit more sense. And even th- there are several states now okay. that have gone to the position where they're saying, well, our state, we're going to give the the. All of our electoral votes are going to go to the person who wins the majority vote. Now, some of those states, and I'm not sure which which category Colorado falls in, some of those states actually, their votes only go after the election has been decided. And so if, let's say, that, that Colorado went for President Trump, and then let's say, and I'm just picking a, a random name arbitrarily, right? Let's say that, that Cory Booker or Bernie Sanders won the Democrat nomination, but they won the election. Well, then some states will say, okay, then we're going to give them all the votes because we want to be behind the winner. Well, right. now, you know that's what? kind of skewing it because you're not, really, you're not really giving your votes until the winner's already been decided. So at that point, why would you even give your votes that way? That doesn't make sense. Right. Now, you know what, Tim? Let's stop right there. Uh, when we, let's go to break. When we come back, let's continue this conversation regarding uh, the Electoral College, the national popular vote. It's absolutely fascinating. This is Kim Munson. We will be right back. Hey, Jason McBride, what is on your mind today? Well, Kim, you guys are having a pretty darn good discussion about separation of church and state, and I'm certainly no expert on it, but I I know that's one of those areas that sometimes feels a little bit murky, and I always go to my friend Chris Stefanik uh, for guidance on these type of things, and, you know, after watching one of his videos and talking to him, a few things came to mind for me, And one is that the Declaration of Independence says God-given rights, and it's the government's function to protect those rights and not to take them away. So I think that's one thing that kind of struck me, Kim. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, another is is the the whole meaning of separation of church and state has kind of gotten twisted to mean that the public square has to be free from the presence or influence of religion. And I think that's kind of the exact opposite of what the intent was. Uh, another thing, uh, Chris has a great video on YouTube at Real, just Google, uh, go to YouTube, Real Life Catholic Separation of Church and State. And he mentions in there that the Obama administration was the first one in history that used the words freedom of worship instead of freedom of religion. And Chris says that worship means that it's okay inside the walls of the church or behind closed doors, while freedom of religion means that you are free to exercise your beliefs as you wish, which brings me right back to the First Amendment, where the government shall make no law that prohibits the free exercise of your religion. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. And so, again, that YouTube is Real Life Catholic 
separation of church and state. Again, real-life Catholic uh, separation of church and state. Jason, really great thoughts, greatly appreciated. And uh, for more information about you and presidential wealth management, you can go to chickspresidential.com. That's chickspresidential.com. And, uh, Jason, have a great day. We will talk to you tomorrow. Have a great show, Kim. Thanks. Come join the 88 Drive-In for all your favorite blockbuster movies. We're open seven days a week. Admission is only $9 per person and children under 12 are free. Friday, June 28th through Thursday, July 4th, features will include Toy Story 4, Godzilla, and Aladdin. And remember our popular Monday through Thursday pizza special. Get one 12-inch pizza served fresh and hot from our oven and two tall, cool 16-ounce sodas all for only 12 bucks. Plus, now you can top it all off with our new sweet, crunchy churros and a steaming cup of hot chocolate. For more information, go to our Facebook page or visit our website at 88drivein.net. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. You'd like to get in touch with one of Kim Munson's sponsors, but you can't recall their phone number. Find a full list of advertising partners on AmeriChicks.com. God bless America. to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation and be sure to check out my website, Americhicks.com. Sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming uh, topics and guests and issues. Thrilled to be having a conversation with Tim Barton. He is the president of Wall Builders. And, and I think, Tim, what you're really doing is you are, are rebuilding these ideas, uh, empowering people to understand these foundational ideals that, you know, founded this country. And, and just very quickly, you, you had mentioned in the first segment, you have this extensive library of original documents. So you go right back to these documents as you guys are formulating uh, your, your conversations about these things. We do, and we actually we footnote everything because we want people to be able to see exactly where these ideas came from. And so what we try to do is, is always make sure that when we see a quote, you know, so often you see things on social media where somebody puts out a meme and, you know, maybe it's a president's face and there's a quote under it. Well, it, it's pretty easy to create a meme. How do we know what's on that meme is actually true, right? How do we know it's actually what they said? And, you know, we've seen this even with media, with, with, with President Trump and, you know, some of these uh, detention or holding facilities on the border. And, you know, the, these pictures that have been displayed of, well, President Trump has done this, and then, it, oh, come to find out, no, those pictures were actually taken from the Obama administration. You know, it, where you, you just see the news media distorts things, and it's easy for distortion to happen if people don't know what's true. And so what we want to encourage people is always go back and find what is true, what is the source. And so it would be easy for me to tell you, well, George Washington said this. So we're not just going to tell you he said that because how do we know that, you know, how, how do you know that what I'm saying is true? So what we do whenever we do articles, whenever we do books, every single quote, we put the footnote beside it. So you can go back and read the footnote and... If maybe it's in a letter that we have 
the original letter, then, then you might not be able to find that online for one of these founding fathers. Well, what we do is we then take a, a high-resolution scan of the image, and we'll post it on the website, and that way you can go to the website and you can read That's the so letter cool. for yourself. But we want to make sure people always go back to, to the original source because we care more about what is true than, than just about an agenda or our side winning. It seems so often today people care more about their side winning than they do what's true. And that's a dangerous place for America to be. George Washington, in his farewell address, talked about the love of party was one of the greatest dangers to America. When people cared more about their party winning than, than what was true, that's a very dangerous place to be in. Well, that's, it seems to be that's where we are today. When, you know, it, it, it's Donald Trump against the Democrats, and, well, you've got to pick a side. Well, why can't we just say let's, let's, let's support what's true? And, and when Donald Trump is right, we say, good job. When he's wrong, we say, that's wrong. When the Democrats are right, we say, good job. When they're wrong, we say, that's wrong. Why can't we just have a standard of truth instead of our side winning? It's a dangerous place for America to be in. Uh, that sounds like a very good philosophy, uh, Tim Barton. So, again, uh, your website is wallbuilders.com. That's wallbuilders.com. Let's continue regarding the Electoral College. Uh, when you learn about it, when you totally understand understand it, you realize the brilliance. And you had mentioned uh, out here, Colorado passed a law regarding uh, that our votes would go to the national popular vote, which in essence is giving the voice of Coloradans to Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and, and New York. And the founders realized that that was not what we wanted to have happen. So they put in the um, Electoral College. Explain to our listeners how the electors are chosen, because I think that's the brilliance of making sure that our votes count for us here in Colorado. Sure. So, so uh, again, just to give a little context, when the Founding Fathers did this, th- there were three or four states that had the majority of the population uh, of the original 13 colonies. In fact, one of the guys who served in, in the U.S. representative, he's a congressman, he then was a U.S. senator, um, actually under George Washington and, and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. So <clears throat> he was in Congress a long time as a congressman and senator. And he talked about the Electoral College, and he said the principle of the Constitution of election by electors is certainly preferable to all others because, and this is what he says, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York may combine. They may say to all other states, we will not vote for your man. So he says if, if we set up a system where it's just a popular vote, there may be a few states that get together, right? What if New York? And, and California and Illinois got together and said, okay, all of, our, all of our votes are going for this person. They have enough population to win the popular vote by themselves based on right, how many people have been voting in elections. They have that much population. And so the Electoral College was put in place, again, very brilliantly to say you can't just win a couple of states. Every state will be a, a matter of percentage. And so – so currently, right now, we have 50 states, and then you have some territories as well. But you have to win. If you won all of the states that have the most population, therefore they have the most electorate, then you would get – you'd have to win 12 states. So that's not the majority, but it's, it is a majority of the population in those states, but it's enough of a population that you have to win more than just California or New York or Texas – 
you got to win 12 states, and you have to win the 12 biggest states, which is also a challenge. Now, if if let's say you started with the, the states like a Montana or Wyoming that only has you know three electorates or four electorates, well, in those cases, if you started from the very least and worked your way up, how many would you have to win? You'd have to win 39 states to win the president if you started with the states with the, the fewest electorates. And the way the electorates work is you have an electoral vote for your your senators so every state has two for their senators then you have one vote for every one of your congressmen and so congressmen are based on on population and that's where when you have states like a california like a texas which has so much population well they have more u.s representatives therefore they get one electoral vote for every u.s representative they have and so when when you start counting up representatives this is where the the numbers grow and the states that have more population will get more electoral votes and so the state actually gets to choose who their electoral voters are in the sense of you can assign that you, you, for example, could be one of the people chosen in Colorado to cast the electoral vote. Now, electoral voters are bound to vote the way that their state has told them to vote based on, you know, some states will do, if you win our state, then you get all of our electoral votes. Some states are split that you get based on the, you know, if, if you won 60% of the votes in our state, then you get 60% of our electoral votes. And whoever got 40% gets 40% electoral votes. So the states actually have the freedom. This is constitutional. The states have the freedom to determine how they're going to do that, but they don't have the freedom to say we're not going to do electoral votes anymore. And so this is where it is an even very interesting constitutional issue that, according to the Constitution, this is one of those states' rights that states get to determine kind of the means and the operation of their elections, but they are required by the Constitution to have elections, and the number of electoral votes they are given is also a, constitutional, a constitutionally explained issue. So you don't get to arbitrarily choose more electoral voters, but you can choose sometimes how you assign those voters. So even though we could argue that's not original intent of the Constitution, it does leave some provision for states to do things that would seemingly be contrary to the founders' intent, because it certainly would be contrary to their intent. But states do have the freedom to to make some of those decisions. Okay, so I think what I'm hearing you say is I've always thought that this law that was passed here in Colorado was unconstitutional uh, regarding the national popular vote. But after I hear you talk about that, I'm not sure it's unconstitutional. I don't think it's right, but I'm not sure that it's unconstitutional. Well, and, and, and that's the bottom line issue, right? There are some things that are constitutional, but it does not mean they're permissible, right? Like it's, it, so, so I'm a Christian, and, and as a Christian, I can look, and, and there are some things that in my faith I look and go, that's sinful. And and there's other things that I can look and go, that's foolish, right? Foolish is not always sinful. Like, doing something dumb does not always mean that you were sinful. It just meant that was dumb, right? That mm-hmm. you, that's probably not smart to do. Well, there are some things that it's not that they're not constitutional. It's just that's a dumb way to do it. And, and this is where sometimes, like, it, 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 
there could be disagreements, and I, I'm saying this with a caveat. We have a lot of friends who are, are constitutional attorneys. Um, you know, whether it's it's guys from Alliance Defending Freedom or from Liberty Council or First Liberty, or right, we can go down this litany of of people that you know we we are are friends with that run these legal circles. Not all of us agree on some of these issues because some of us think no. Based on this in the Constitution, it means this, and some go, well, no, based on this, it means this. And so there, there are some separations of thoughts on this, but with that being said, all of us agree that the Constitution does give the people the freedom to be dumb in occasion, but <laughs> if we choose to be dumb, ultimately it will, in the long run, be much more detrimental to us, and we... We have been given the constitutional freedom to ultimately destroy the Constitution. And, and this is where the argument then changes, is that, well, should we really have the freedom to destroy the very thing that gave us the freedom to do what we do in the first place? That's a different discussion, but constitutionally, we have been given the freedom to be dumb. It just is something that we shouldn't openly embrace us being dumb. Well, that's for sure. And uh, I, I can't remember now who said it uh, regarding freedom, that individual freedom is the the biggest danger to individual freedom. So, it's, okay. it's absolutely right. Yeah. So, hey, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we have one more segment. I'm talking with Tim Barton. He is the president of Wall Builders. And I, I want to talk about maybe something more contemporary regarding separation of of church and state, so we will be right back. Hey, have you ever wanted to ride in a real World War II warplane? Oh my gosh, we have a very exciting giveaway for you. The Collings Foundation is bringing their Wings of Freedom World War II Warbirds to the Northern Colorado Regional Airport July 12th, 13th, and 14th. You can visit a World War II camp complete with a tank, jeeps, and all kinds of things to go through. But here's the most exciting part. One lucky listener will get a ride on one of the World War II Warbirds. If you're 18 years or older, go to my website, americhicks.com, and sign up for the July 9th drawing. Are you feeling lucky? Again, go to theamerichicks.com and sign up. It will be quite an adventure. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect your private property rights. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. Since losing her mother to breast cancer, Karen Levine has helped to organize a local fundraising event called Karen's for the Cure, raising money for breast cancer research. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the Americhicks with Kim Munson. So call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. Want a chance to ride in a real World War II warbird? Go to Americhicks.com and sign up for the July 9th drawing.
Welcome back to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, Americhicks.com. Sign up for my emails there. I have on the line with me, this is the last segment uh, with Tim Barton. He is the president of Wall Builders. That website is wallbuilders.com. That's wallbuilders.com. All kinds of great information there. Uh, We started out the conversation, Tim, about separation of church and state. I think you gave an excellent um, explanation on what the founders meant. And also, it is nowhere in the Declaration of Independence or Constitution. So that's important that people understand that. But I want to, I have a more contemporary question for you. And and that is, if if religion is a set of beliefs, and um, the uh, First Amendment says um, that Congress shall establish no religion. So, so they should establish no set of beliefs. But we are seeing things that our belief systems, like climate change. I mean, there's so many things out there, but it's a set of beliefs. And we see politicians and bureaucrats and interested parties using their power to, to tax, to force policy, to force those beliefs are they not, is that not a direct affront on the separation of church and state? What do you think, Tim Barton? That is, that is a great question. You know, one of the things that is very interesting in America is generally when we talk about religion, more times than not, when people talk about we want to restrict religion, they're, they're generally referring to Christianity. Because if you look at public schools, for example, in California, you'll have public schools that will do entire weeks, sometimes do months, where they study Islam, where they'll teach the students to do prayers, and, 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 and you face Mecca, and here's the mat, and, and, and they'll teach them how to wear the burqa. And, and this is public school teaching religion. Now, wait a second, I thought we couldn't do that. And, and the answer is, well, that's just Christianity, because uh, one of the things that, that the U.S. Supreme Court said in 1992 under a case of uh, Lee v. Wiseman is they said that actually the, the Constitution is only to restrict the religion that is in the majority, but you can promote religion if it's in the minority. Now, this, this really? is where you have <laughs> fundamental problems, because it used to be in America that we believed in inalienable rights, not in group rights, right? It was individual rights. It doesn't matter if you're part of the LGBT community, if you're part, right, if, if, if you're a, a left-handed, red-headed, blue-eyed person, or... Right? If you were a Native American, like, groups didn't matter. We recognize, no, you have a God-given right. At least that was the idea behind it, that we recognize individual rights, not group rights. We are in a place in America now where we, we much more promote the idea of group ideology instead of individual rights and individual freedom. And this is also seen when it comes to religion, where... One of the things the U.S. Supreme Court also made a ruling is they said a religion is any sincerely held belief was how they defined religion. Now, a sincerely held belief, I mean, I have a sincerely held belief that I love my wife. Does that mean I have a religion of loving my wife? Right? Like, how do we draw the line of what is a sincerely held belief and that therefore becomes a religious belief because you sincerely believe it? Well, this to your point, based on what the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled, well, then climate change is a religion because it's a sincerely held belief. And, and you can go down the list of what these things are, but then where in their convoluted way they would say, yes, but 
the way it's supposed to work is we protect the minority from the majority. Now, that is a very, very flawed position because what it means is you no longer have the protection of everybody's rights. You are now protecting the minority's rights from the majority. And right, if we were saying that people were being bullied and they were being oppressed, we would say, no, 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 we need to protect and defend them, except in most cases you don't have situations where minorities have been bullied in, in, in the sense of what the US, U.S. Supreme Court was ruling. They're just saying, well, we have to restrict Christianity and, and we need to promote these minority religions because if you're a minority, you might feel like you're being oppressed because everybody else has this belief system you don't have. Therefore, we need to tell Christians that you can't practice your faith in public, but we will promote every other idea except for Christians. Now, that's what was generally said, except we know that's not totally true because Jews, Orthodox Jews, are still one of the most attacked groups, not just in the world, also in America. There's a lot of religious hostility and racism against Jews, and in many cases, you have the federal government or state governments that are opposing Orthodox Jewish practices and religions where city councils are coming out against them. States are coming out against those practices. So what is actually more accurate is you see attacks against Judeo and Christian heritage and practices against Jews and Christians, and, and, and this is where you do see an ideological battle. So as, as much as we want to say, well, you know, this is a religion that's not a religion. This is, this is what the Constitution says. It's not what the Constitution says. It really is a battle of ideologies. It, it, it's a battle of secularism. It's a battle of, of people that are, are anti-Christian, that are anti-Jewish, who are promoting other ideologies. And, and it's not based on fact, it's not based on reality, it's not based on the Constitution, it's based on an agenda. And this is the dangerous thing when we are allowing nine unelected lawyers, because that's what the Supreme Court justices are, they're all lawyers, and, and they've not been elected, and we say they have lifetime appointments, which, by the way, the Constitution does not guarantee lifetime appointments. The Constitution says that judges will serve for the duration of good behavior. The reason today we view that as lifetime appointments is because we no longer know how to define good behavior, right? When, when Bill Clinton was president and the scandal he had with Monica Lewinsky, that, that used to be considered bad behavior, right? He should have been not only impeached, he should have been thrown out of office for what he did as president. But today we say, well, we can't really say that about him. We don't know how to define bad behavior or what good behavior is anymore. And therefore we say, no, federal judges, U.S. Supreme Court justices, they serve for life. And so you have nine unelected judges who are now ultimately determining law for the land, when if you back up to the Constitution or even read the Federalist Papers, which the Federalist Papers was the explanation of how the Constitution was going to work and apply, the, the Federalist Papers explain the Constitution specifies that the judicial branch is by far the weakest branch, and neither of the other branches can ever be threatened by the judicial branch. That's actually in the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. That is not the way it's interpreted or thought to be today. And so what happens is we, we are living in, in a judge's ideology. So whoever has the majority of the Supreme Court, that's, that's 
the laws of land we're going to live under instead of having Supreme Court justice say, what does the Constitution say and let's do what that says? Because that's our job. Our job is to uphold what is constitutional, what's not, and, and, and actually they can even only give their opinion. Congress can also give their opinion. The president can also give his opinion. Everybody can give an opinion. Just because the Supreme Court gives an opinion doesn't mean that all the other branches or all of America has to follow it, except that's the way it's understood today. So back to your original question, how do we even determine a religion? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court said any sincerely held belief is a religious belief. And so... If we were going to be intellectually honest, we would have to say, well, then we have to stop everybody who is upholding a sincerely held religious belief. Well, that's ludicrous. That doesn't make any sense at all. But, but this is why saying we should just follow the opinions of the court doesn't make sense, because the opinions of the court change every 20 or 30 or 40 years. The reason it made sense to say let's follow the Constitution, it was a much more objective standard that was a lot more difficult to change. And, and, and the Founding Fathers did give provisions. You can change the Constitution. It's been changed 27 times. There were 27 amendments mm-hmm. that were ratified by the states. You can change the Constitution, but it required the majority of states, 38 states, have to ratify it in order for a new a new amendment to come to the Constitution. Well, now we're saying, well, no, the president has a pen and phone, right? He has an executive order. He can do what he wants. Well, the, the, the judges can just come out and tell us what is and isn't constitutional, what is and isn't legal. That was never the intent of the founding fathers, and it's totally backwards to what they wrote and intended. Well, and that is why everyday people need to be sure that they read the Declaration, know the Constitution. And, uh, Tim, you'll be interested to know that uh, I have uh, partnered with uh, Dr. Tom Cranowitter. He is an expert on the Federalist Papers, as well as uh, Lincoln and the founding. And we started something called Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, where we are doing a book study of the Federalist Papers. And we, we kind of thought, what would happen... Uh, uh, we're meeting at a winery uh, over here in uh, the metro area, and once a month, people are actually paying a small tuition fee. And uh, then we opened up another one in Castle Rock, and we just started one up in Fort Collins. And we have uh, almost 200 people that are studying the Federalist Papers, and it is eye-opening. It's very exciting. That is great. And and so helpful if if the American people had more understanding of of what was supposed to happen, what wasn't supposed to happen, it would be easier for us to hold our elected officials accountable. But when we don't even know what their job is, most Americans can't even name the three branches of government, much less do we know the role of the three branches. The Federalist Papers outlines that so well. So I'm hearing about this for the first time. I would encourage every listener, find a way to get plugged into this, learn what the, the founding fathers intended, because once we understand the intent, it's a lot easier to start trying to restore those very things that are being lost and taken away from us today. That's for sure. And you can go and engage in the battle of ideas that is raging in America. And of course, you guys over at Wall Builders, you're on the front line. And so, Tim Barton, uh, thank you so much. This has just been a fabulous conversation about uh, separation of church and state and, and even more about our Constitution. So thank you so much. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Okay, our quote for today is uh, the preamble of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish 
this Constitution for the United States of America. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. This is Kim Munson signing off. God bless you, and God bless America. And I don't want no one to cry, but tell them if I don't serve.